it's important for a little child to be able to understand that there are trolls out there. There are mean, scary things out there. And it's okay for them to be a little, like, trepidatious. Like, what are they going to do about this troll? Um, it's also helpful for, them, helpful for them to know that they have a big goat, their dad, uh, to th- that's here to put the troll in his place, right? Um, so by reading this story about a troll and about, you know, it's kind of funny, it's humorous, um, but a kid needs to learn that there are trolls out there. And that can be in the form of people, that can be in the form of events in their lives that are scary. They need to have a category for what troll-like things exist. And if all, if the only child stories that you read, um, you know, are really didactic, that's like telling them about like, hey, God is a king and he's a savior and, you know, tell them those facts. But if that's all you read, then they may not be able to, they may not have the opportunity to see that there are, are troll-like things out there. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I'm joined today by my friend and our recent Bible conference speaker, Mitchell Hawley. Mitchell is the principal of Memoria Press Online Academy. He also has roles related to Highland Latin School in Louisville, Kentucky. Mitch graduated from the Maranatha Baptist University with a Bachelor's of Arts in Cross-Cultural Studies. He graduated with a Master of Divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he graduated with a THM from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writing a thesis under the supervision of Dr. Jonathan Pennington as he explored the idea of citizenship in Philippians. Mitch, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. You made me sound really cool, so thanks for that. Well, you obviously have all of all of that credibility based on your wide-ranging studies and educational experience and current vocation, but you're also a husband and a father. Can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, we, uh, my wife and I have been married for nine years or so. Um, I always forget, but uh, we got married early, and uh, we have a little, little girl named Sylvia, Sylvia Marie, and... Um, Sylvia, we, it was funny, I, I didn't originally like the name Sylvia, but then it just sort of hit me that that just had to be the name. Um, but it has a long history. Um, it was, you know, it's sort of, um, uh, Sylvia is the mother of Romulus and Remus, who uh, are the founders of Rome. Yeah. And uh, so Sylvia is the mother of Western civilization. So that, 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 was a, that wasn't my original motivation to, for, to choose this, that name, uh, because my wife just sort of mentioned it, but... Um, yeah, it's, uh, she's, she's a wonderful little bundle of joy, honestly. So can you, in like 30 seconds, tell us the myth of the founding of Rome? Uh, well, long story short, you have two, two brothers raised by wolves, um, and they both become, you know, founders of Rome. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's different iterations of it, but at the end of the day, you have two brothers raised by wolves um, who then go on to, to found the city of Rome. Okay, so are you familiar with a band called the Mountain Goats and their song, Up the Wolves? No. <laughs> no. Are we uh, going to play this right now? Hold on. I'd like to. He's getting it set up. It's pretty funny. 
Okay, so I'm I'm getting connected here. This is one of my favorite songs, and I think I think you would enjoy it. So let's see if I can play it. Um, it it definitely will become clear that this is referencing the founding of Rome, but the meaning of the song is not necessarily clear to me. I really like that verse because it does very honestly talk about some of the tough things in life and the reality that there are things that all of us deal with that are hard to forgive. Sure. And then I like the picture of like this future day that he's about to sing about. And here comes the connection to the men. Our mother has been absent ever since we found it wrong. There's gonna be a party when the wolf comes home. And now maybe you can explain what's about to happen here because it's like almost this vengeful sort of dealing with a problem. But I'm not quite sure the way that you would connect this to the myth of the founding of Rome. And, and here comes the, like, most intense aspect of the song. Well, not this interlude, but the next section of lyrics. Right. <laughs> this interlude is really peaceful and enjoyable. Yeah, sets the mood. It's like the Shire. It's a really destructive story. So yeah, this song is, I think, very easy to listen to. I sort of like that style of music. I like a reference to Greek mythology anytime that I can come across it in music or literature. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe talk about little, this song and uh, the myth. A little bit more about the story because um, so Romulus and Remus were the sons of Sylvia and the or the byproduct of a, a love affair between Sylvia and uh, the god Mars. And um, and the king of the, the city at the time ordered that they be put to death. Um, and um, so instead of doing that, Sylvia you know, 
saved her sons, putting them in a basket. They drifted around. They were suckled by by wolves uh, while they were babies, and they were found by shepherds. Um, they were raised by shepherds, and then they eventually grew up, and they overthrew the city uh, where the king was uh, that that told their mother that they had to, you know, um, uh, or that they, that they had to be killed, and they sort of wanted to reestablish a city, right? So they, um, after they tore it down to pieces because of what it sort of invent, like in, in, in wrath against uh, the mother or against uh, the king. Um, and so, uh, but the brothers disagreed about where exactly the, the city of Rome should be founded. Um, and they quarreled about it and eventually Romulus killed Remus. Um, so things kind of got out of hand. But the funny part about that song is mom's been absent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, um, she, you know, she put her sons in a basket and, you know, put yep. them away, so she had, didn't get a chance to raise them. And so she kind of shifts to the background of the story. And so it's funny. So these are two boys with mommy issues, um, you know, who were raised by wolves. Yeah. And so they, they were actually called the, you know, the sons of wolves. Like that was sort of like a, uh, a moniker that referred only to them. So the wolves are coming home. Like we're going to do some damage. We're going to blow things up. Yep. And that's what they did. It's kind of a funny story. Yeah, so the way I came across this song is for a brief span of my life, I was really into this TV show called The Walking Dead. It's sort of this zombie (laughs) show, apocalyptic type show. And there are these three societies that actually kind of correlate to Plato's three classes in the Republic with um, the producers, the agrarians, and and then I forget like the ruling class or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and they're like warring on each other. And I think this song is playing in the aftermath of one of those or like while they're plotting something. That's uh, so yeah, you have to send me the song. I got to show the people at work this song. Cause if, if there's one group of people who are weird enough to appreciate it, it, it it's a bunch of people out of classical school. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you could appreciate it and we could talk about it here. No one else is going to appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> that could be, that could be. Um, well, Mitch, you have joined us for a Bible conference on the Christian and the imagination. So we've talked a lot about the imagination, about story, about the way that literature cultivates the imagination. But I want to start by talking to you about the way that we communicate truth through poetic language, through metaphor, through analogy, these sort of things. We've, we've basically been assuming that there are multiple ways of expressing truth. You know, there are more scientific ways of expressing truth or direct propositions of truth, but then there are also these other ways that evoke the imagination a little bit. Um, and as I've been thinking about this, in fact, I think almost every divine speech in the Bible takes place in a poetic form, mm-hmm. or depictions of God are almost all metaphor or analogy. Um, so when we attend to that, how does that shape the way that we communicate truth or that maybe we should think about communicating and responding to truth? Um, during the Enlightenment, uh, they kind of ruined it for us. So a lot of good things that came out of the Enlightenment. Now, uh, can you quickly summarize what the Enlightenment is for our listeners? Uh, sure. Yeah. The, <laughs> the Enlightenment is this period of history where uh, reason is has been elevated. And so people are, are doing a lot more philosophy. They're, they're sort of analyzing uh, what is the nature of knowledge. And um, out of the, the Enlightenment, we have this elevation of reason um, and a, a reason conceived of in a particular way and elevating reason above um, 
you know, received traditional knowledge, right? So like, and, and there's like this critical um, reinvestigation of everything. So you can't read the Bible and, um, or the argument goes, you can't read the Bible and then use the Bible to interpret the world. You have to let the world speak, right? And you have to study it scientifically. Um, and so, you know, it led to the scientific revolution, the enlightenment did, you know, it led to a lot of great, uh, great things, but it also led to a lot of um, bad things because of that elevation of reason, um, specifically a, a critical type of reason that, um, that, that did not see uh, theology as, as fact, that saw that as sort of a value statement about things. And so all fact and value has to be distinguished. So science is the realm of fact and religion is the realm of value and those things don't speak to one another. Okay, right? so where previously someone might have been able to say something like, theology is the queen of the sciences, now that's like separated to where science speaks to objective fact, and theology and religion can only speak to inner private truth. Is that maybe a good summary? Sure, yeah. Or, or Yeah, at the very, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a... a a pushing of of elevating of science and, and and denigration of Christian tradition of Christian philosophy, um, and and a prioritizing of the sort of hard sciences, um, and obviously that led to a lot of amazing breakthroughs in the fields of you know sciences, but it also led to a, a pretty corrupt view of what a person is, and how language works. You know, so in his um, essays concerning human understanding. Who wrote that? Was that Kant? No. Who wrote? I, I think. Oh, I can't remember now. I can't remember. This is embarrassing. Uh, so, someone Google um, when you have a free time. Who wrote the essays concerning human understanding? Um, and uh, because in there he, he sort of makes the argument about language. Who is it? Did you? It's John Locke. John Locke. We have the technology in the studio to Google <laughs> these sorts of things. Well, it's embarrassing. That I forgot this, but yeah. So John Locke is is sort of the Enlightenment par excellence. And he uh, wrote this, uh, this essay on human understanding. But in there, he talks about language and how language um, shapes our perception of the world. And he makes the argument that all metaphor and all analogy should be done away with because it's purely ornamental. Metaphors are things that can, that can be replaced by a simple is-then statement. So if you were to say... Um, um, you know, uh, like Aaron is a wolf, and I would be, I would be insinuating something sort of vicious about Aaron. Um, then I could just replace that metaphor by just saying, "Hey, Aaron is vicious," or "Aaron's a, a bad person; he's cutthroat." Um, <clears throat> and um, the the downside of the essays concerning human understanding and that particular view of metaphor is that this is a really long answer to your question. But at, you asked me what the alignment was and you got me off topic. Um, but a, a byproduct of that understanding of language is that all metaphors can be done away with mm -hmm. and, and because they're just an ornament. They're things that, that are, don't contribute anything to meaning. And it, that premise could not be further from the truth. Um, and, and, and actually, over the last, you know, since the Enlightenment, uh, much of philosophy has been trying to recover um, a an understanding of language that has a, that places the right priority on metaphor because metaphor and the specifically the metaphors in scripture um, say things about the world that couldn't be said in any other way. There are things about, for example, um, 
Paul's use of, of metaphors about the church that couldn't be said in, in statements. So, for example, there's a number of metaphors that, that Paul uses for the church. Um, um, the body of Christ. Um, uh, help me out here. Um, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation uh, of the truth. Temple. Uh, it's a dwelling place by yeah, the spirit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, um, and then there's one awesome one that I wrote about that you alluded to uh, in the book of Philippians, where he says that Christians are a body of citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now let's analyze that one just for a second because it's the one I've thought the most about. Um, there are things about the Christian life that are hard to understand. What sort of obligation should we have to one another? What should that look like? How should we even talk about this thing called the church? How should we talk about the church in relationship to broader society? You know, is is this a sort of microcosm of the larger society or are we doing something countercultural? And um, I think the, the metaphor of citizenship is really helpful because it, it, gives us a way to begin to conceptualize who we are. So that metaphor becomes a sort of identity marker for us. And we begin to see ourselves as uh, a group of citizens who are establishing a kingdom Mm -hmm. and who there's a certain amount of debt and obligation that we owe to one another. So in the Greco-Roman world, if you were a citizen of a particular polis, like for example, in Athens, if Athens was at war with another city state in ancient Greece, it was illegal for um, for a grain salesman to sell grain to any other city because during a time of war, the grain salesman should not be concerned about making money or making a profit. The grain salesman should be selling that grain, keeping the money in the polis, shouldn't be, you know, buying you know, seeds or anything from another city. He should be, he has, he owes a debt to this city, right? That's also why if you were caught sleeping at your post or you abandoned your post, that, that was uh, during a time of war, that was considered uh, punishable by death because we all understood that there's a certain amount of obligation, debt that you owe as a citizen. And so when Paul says that you are, to, in, in 127, live as worthy citizens of the gospel, he's alluding to all of this world of, of debt and obligation and, and life together and, and building, a, building a sort of society that the church has an obligation to perform together. Um, and that's a, you, you can't take all of those implications, all of those um, um, associations uh, about citizenship, and you can't reduce that entire world of meaning to just a few simple statements. A few simple statements might be able to capture some of it, right? But that metaphor captures all of those things with a simple phrase, um, live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's interesting to note that throughout the Bible, most of the like deepest and most important aspects of life and reality and God and who we are are communicated through metaphors. So we have to really lean into that and reject the notion that the truest way to speak about something is through a singular statement. And that can be hard because we're all living in a world that says the the like highest truth is going to be the a bare statement of fact. Yeah. Um, so it's also helpful to, to understand a little bit more about what metaphors do or metaphorical languages do. Because yeah, did you want to go somewhere else? Yeah, I want to get into that maybe. Okay. But I w- I want to raise the question then for the average Christian who's trying to read the Bible and relate to these metaphors and understand them. I, th- I think this poses a challenge because even in the example that you gave, 
Greco-Roman citizenship is very different than American citizenship. Sure. You know, I think the average American citizen... Thinks of rights instead of obligations. Yeah, they think of rights and not obligations. And if you ask them, uh, if you just pick any rando and say, hey, what does it mean to be a good citizen? I think you might hear something like, you don't cheat on your taxes and um, like that's it, you know, like maybe you recycle. So, you know, how... How would you advise Christians who are reading the Bible, who are encountering metaphors, to uh, go about interpreting them and not just projecting our modern conceptions on that, whether it happens to be citizenship or fatherhood or slavery? Um, how, how would you go about guiding them to read the Bible and to enter into that metaphorical world? Yeah, I think, well, a couple of things. You know, obviously, I think reading large chunks of Scripture are helpful because they kind of set they kind of set their establish their own context in a particular history or at least in a particular narrative. Um, but then I would also encourage everyone to start in the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms is audacious um, in, in the extent to which they uh, make metaphors about God. Um, the authors of the Psalm uh, of the Psalms are, I mean, when you think about it, you know, if you step back and just sort of ask the question, okay, I want you to just describe God and the divine life, but you have to use words. And you you may be a little fearful. Hey, how do I describe this? How do I capture this? Well, the authors of the Psalms seem to have no qualms with comparing God or you you know to th- hundreds of different things, a, a rock, uh, God. So imagine what that saying. God is in some way rock like. That's it. To have the courage to be able to make that statement, I mean, it, it's it's kind of amazing when you begin to think about it. He's rock-like. He's like a, a mother hen uh, who uh, broods over her children. She's like, God is like uh, a mother bear. Um, God is like a strong lion. God is like a sunrise. God is like a strong wind. I mean, there's so many metaphors about God. And I think the Psalms invite you to see God as those things. And you don't need... a significant background to, to jump into the Psalms and say, God is a rock. Okay. Well, yeah, we could get into like the, um, you know, the second temple Judaism background and we can analyze how uh, Jewish authors in the bronze age talked about rocks and how the, you know, we could, you know, we could sort of, you know, maybe that's one level of analysis. Uh, but also you can simply just sort of pray to God, ask for his discernment, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, just sort of bring yourself to contemplate these metaphors for God um, and what they may be saying. Um, and just allow yourself some freedom to say, you know, I may not be 100% right in what I, what in, in the meaning that I'm sort of reading from this, um, but just, you know, in faith, boldly step forward and try to make sense of things like God is a mother bear who protects her cubs, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. And obviously this is an important conversation topic for me because I'm I'm trying to write on the image of God as a metaphor. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't really give you a one word or one sentence definition for what a human is, but it gives you different metaphors or pictures along the way. It does that with God, it does that with some of with the church, some of these deepest realities. Um But I want to move on from this to change the subject just a little bit, because last night you talked to us about cultivating the imagination through literature. And I enjoyed hearing some of the examples you had and over the weekend talking to you about other stories along the way. 
And I think most of us could identify the first story that really um, caused us to see the world in a different way. Uh, For me, I think To Kill a Mockingbird was that, and maybe because Atticus Finch told me to walk in someone else's skin for a little while. And that's actually what the author was allowing us to do in this story by introducing us to characters and showing us the world through their point of view. What book was that for you that allowed you to see the world in a different way because you walked in someone else's skin for a while? That's a tough one. Um, that's a really tough one. I'll say the one that I've spent the most time reading. Okay. And that, and so this probably wasn't the first, um, but but this is the one I've spent the most time with. Um, and that's uh, reading the literature of Tolkien. Um, so, you know, most people are familiar with The Hobbit. Um, and, and then after The Hobbit, most people are familiar with the trilogy. There's some great movies been made about you know, all four of those books. Yeah, and I just have to interject. It's actually not a trilogy, but it's mm. one story that, like, because of publication costs post-war, had to be split into three volumes. You know, <laughs> I just have to nerd out on that, you know, really briefly. No, I appreciate the clarification, um, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so uh, the, the single book published in three volumes. Yeah, sorry for being the well-actually guy. <laughs> well-actually. Um, yeah, so The Hobbit, um, after I read The Hobbit, I read The Lord of the Rings, um, in the saga, volumes, the yeah. saga, and um, and then there are like fifteen volumes of history that I started reading uh, because I didn't want to leave that world. There was something about that world and about those characters that were um, archetypical. They they were they they gave me categories to to speak about um, my own life. Um, and I just didn't want to leave that world. Like a great example is in the Cimmerillion. So the Cimmerillion is a history of uh, Middle Earth. Um, it, it 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 tells the story of Middle Earth before the uh, the saga. Now, I mean, every time I would say trilogy, you're I'm gonna like look at you and you're gonna be judging me. But you know, Mitch, a lot of conversations are intended to aid in personal growth, and I think this is a personal <laughs> growth is- issue for you. Uh, well, I appreciate it. But in the Cimmerillion, um, the way that uh, Tolkien um, uh, depicts the creation narrative, where uh, Illuminor is God um, creates a, 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 a I think you mean Iluvatar. Oh, oh, what did I say? Illuminor. Yeah, but right. no, it's early <laughs> in the morning. I just have to make that correction because we do have some some some, some Tolkien here, nerds and yeah. who okay. who may listen Please to this. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's been a while since I've read it, but um, you know, in the creation narrative, uh, he creates um, um, sort of demigods. Um, so these are. Uh, powerful people like angels almost right and um and then he sings a song he models for them what a song is and then he invites them to participate to play a part in the song that he's singing um and then the the tune as they're singing the song it begins to crash together and and things are being formed things are being made because they're making music together but then there is this one angel this one demigod named melkor um who is who wants to play his own part who doesn't like the song that that god has written and so he he tries to play um his own sort of role there and this is a perfect analogy for one creation where in the in the very fabric of creation there is a song sung by the divine and so there's an evidence of uh, the very nature of things evidence 
or or as we talked about you know yesterday or yeah yesterday about um, it's charged with the divine life mm-hmm. um, and so in nature we can see evidence of God himself uh, because there's a there's a logic to uh, to how trees work and and, 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 and how what 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 things are beautiful um, and those things evidence God um, but then what happens with sin is when things are used to, when the when the music of God in things are twisted is twisted um, when we take things that are good and we uh, we twist their purposes right um, and that's what Melkor does he takes uh, the song of God and he he wants to sing his own part um, and so he kind of re- he introduces sin into the world right and from then on uh, the song has to be fixed right. Um, and it's a beautiful picture, right? It's a whole bunch of metaphors and analogies that are describing uh, creation um, and, and the, the effects of the fall and the effects of rebellion. And by reading that, that sort of introduction to the Cimmerillion, we, we sort of we, we see put on display um, something that we may not have been able to picture before. You know, we've read Genesis, we've read the creation narrative, but to picture it as a song, as a song that is in the very fabric of things was a fascinating way of, of helping me understand how God relates to his creation. Yeah, which is interesting that Lewis also has creation as a song in The Magician's Nephew. But one of my favorite things about that portrayal of the twisting of the song is when Iluvatar t- talks to Olmo, this water demagogue, who's like complaining about what Melko has done Melkor has done to this like beautiful original song. And then Luvatar shows him how even in the distortion of it, everything will eventually redound to his glory. So he's like, look, you know, like Melkor has taken this to the extreme and he's made frozen water. But look at that snowflake and look how beautiful it is. And like, I'm going to make everything good and right, yeah. even with the distortion of the song. Yeah, and I, it's not like Melkor can like ruin the plan of God, Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, he, he has a role to play in making God most glorified. Yeah, I think that's right. And those stories help us process deep theology, and especially for people like us who have like been in worlds that were maybe hyper-Arminian, swinging to the cage stage Calvinist, and then like trying to figure out like, how do we Think about all these things, yeah. especially when we add in our own personal experience of hurt and loss and questions about God's glory, sovereignty. Yeah. Well, Mitch, I want to ask you about uh, the way that you as a father utilize stories for the ethical, moral development of your child. Um, the other night, you were referencing a couple that I thought were particularly helpful. So I'm wondering if you could just talk more generally first about how story can shape the moral imagination of children, and then maybe give a couple of examples about the way that you intentionally do this with your child. Yeah, great question. Um, I think I would start just by saying that a lot of children's literature actually aren't stories. They are very teachy. You know, so we have a number of books that we've been given, you know, about God or the gospel or about, um, you know, something related to Christianity. And they are very didactic. They're very, um, they're they're not actually stories. They are um, just like propositional statements. And that's fine. 
Um, and and that should be part of the diet. Um, but those don't really get at, um, sort of embodying for a child. What a, what a, uh, what a good person is, uh, what a bad person is, what, what things are scary, what things should be avoided, what things are, um, filled with wonder, what things are, you know, what does happiness look like, right? Those, those types of children's stories are, again, should be part of the diet, but I, I, I'm always careful to think about not making those like the fullness of a child's diet because children are excited by stories. I mean, so my child's two years old. Sylvie will sit down for 45 minutes, 50 minutes with me and read stories. She's two. It, it's kind of surprising. And if your child doesn't sit down for 45 minutes, don't feel bad about that, <laughs> you know, but it's something that you can work on. But um, part of the reason is because we've tried to cultivate, we've tried to identify beautiful stories, stories where there's very, you know, starting at, at a very young age where there's um, a narrative that they can follow, you know, so like a good example is um, the Billy Goats Gruff. Um, in that story, you have three brothers um, who are trying to get over to the green grass they are, um, uh, they're stopped on their way by a nasty troll, and the troll is trying to, is going to try to eat them. But uh, they they sort of rely on the next bigger brother uh, to 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 get over over the hill, right? So perhaps you know the story, perhaps you don't. So very simple story: three brothers trying to get from one side to the other, where all the all the food is, and um, but the moral of the story is. Um, you have little goats who need help from a big goat. And it's important for a little child to be able to understand that there are trolls out there. There are mean, scary things out there. And it's okay for them to be a little, like, trepidatious. Like, what are they going to do about this troll? Um, it's also help for them, helpful for them to know that they have a big goat, their dad, uh, to, th- that's here to put the troll in his place. Right. Um, so by reading this story about a troll and about, you know, it's kind of funny, it's humorous. Um, but a kid needs to learn that there are trolls out there. And that can be in the form of people that can be in the form of events in their lives that are scary. They need to have a category for what troll like things exist. And if all, if the only child stories that you read, um, you know, are really didactic, that's like telling them about like, hey, God is a king and he's a savior and, you know, Tell them those facts, but if that's all you read, then they may not be able to. They may not have the opportunity to see that there are, are troll-like things out there, and they need a big, strong daddy goat uh, to to set things right. And then hopefully, my child will will learn that uh, one day they'll set aside daddy goat and they'll find a husband goat uh, who can also help them uh, fight trolls. And maybe that, and maybe even Sylvie can grow up to sort of conceptualize herself as someone who can put away trolls for the vulnerable, right? Um, but that all starts with introducing characters and a story and, and, and a plot where there's some tension. Will the goats get to the other side, right? Um, and, and so that's why it's important uh, to, to, to choose stories that, uh, that introduce some of these, these characters, these metaphors, these, these ways of understanding. Don't just let all of your children's literature be very didactic um, or teachy. Yeah, so that reminds me of 
a saying attributed to Chesterton, and I won't get it word for word, but someone was objecting to the scariness of dragons in his stories for children. And he said something like, children are going to run into dragons and they need stories that show them that a dragon can be slayed. So kids are going to find scary things in their life. And a dragon in a story isn't the worst thing for them. In fact, the right kind of story that shows the dragon being slayed might be the best thing for them for all of life. Right. right. And and I hear you saying the same thing just with trolls. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And and there are bad narratives out there too. I mean, especially today, there's so much garbage children children's literature. You know, it may sound funny, but I I re I read every book that we get for Sylvia that, that someone gives to us or whatever um, before I read it to Sylvia. Yeah, maybe you can give us an example of children's literature that maybe is going to malform your child's moral imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's it's all over the place. Um, um, but one example that you know I came across recently, we were talking about this last night, was uh, there's this book called um, something about Tad. Tad, my name's Tad, or something like that. And it's about a little tadpole named Tad. Um or Thad, maybe his name is Thad. I can't. I, I, I don't really remember. I threw the book away. Um, <laughs> and uh, essentially, the story goes like this: Tad is a little tadpole, and he loves being by his dad. And so he he's excited about. And the story is, the story is mainly him talking from his perspective, where he's really excited that he's growing legs like his dad. He wants to be able to like uh, ribbit like his dad. He wants to be able to you know hop like his dad. Um, and so it's sort of him growing up, being very like talk talking about how excited he is to be like dad and dad's not really talking um and then all of a sudden the first time dad speaks he sort of like is frustrated with his son and says like ah like why can't you go to sleep or something like that and so the the very first moment where the where the dad frog actually says anything towards the son it's this outburst of frustration and then the dad feels bad and then the dad you know realizes that when Tad goes and sleeps in his own room that he actually misses Tad. So like the dad needs the son, you know, and so he's going to go, he's going to go apologize and then they're going to sort of reunite and then Tad's going to grow up and he's going to be, you know, great again. I hate that book because at the end of the day, it portrays uh, the relationship between a father and son as one of annoyance. A son, a little baby is never annoying. I mean, there may be some moments of frustration. You may find yourself annoyed, but you should never communicate annoyance to your child. Uh, you can obviously communicate that you want them to grow, that you want them to change some of their behavior, but annoyance should have, do, do I want Sylvie to look at me and feel like I feel nervous, afraid that I'm going to respond in that sort of way to her? No, no, I don't. Not only that, but it also portrays the dad as the dad needs to go and, uh, you know, uh, apologize and be and, and sort of uh, admit that, you know, the dad was really wrong. And so it's a negative portrayal of fatherhood as well. Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, every sitcom today, the dad is the dumbest person, you know, and, and that re- there are dumb dads out there. I may be one of them. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it's important for our child, our children um, to to learn to see us with honor and respect. And that starts with the stories that we tell. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting example because that story might be a good story for some dads to read Seriously? to learn that yes. they need to be the kind of dad who, when it, 
they express frustration will go to that child and apologize and like restore a relationship. Yeah, it's an but, adult story. And the biggest issue that I run in with in the world of education is when we treat children like adults. Yeah. And, and and they're not equipped for that because I think a kid reads a story and they do put themselves in a particular role. And when Sylvia reads that story, she puts herself in the role of the tadpole who just comes to know dad gets annoyed. And like right. the default relationship will always be annoyed dad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think another act, another children's story that's masquerading as an um, another adult story that's masquerading as a children's story is actually um, Shrek. Okay. Okay. Because Shrek, the movie Shrek, is uh, is about an ogre, and the moral of the story is that things that are disgusting on the outside, like an ogre, might actually be really beautiful on the inside. Mm-hmm. That's the whole moral of the story. Before that story only makes sense when you know that ogres are evil, and that, that's why orcs in in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, they're not redeemable characters. They are pure evil. And a kid must first understand that there is a such a thing as pure evil. And so Shrek is actually a, a critique of that tradition to view. It sort of asks the it sort of steps back and says, "Hey, are all the things that look evil actually evil?" And that's a more advanced question. We have to save that question for someone who first understands that there is evil. Mm-hmm. Because if all you ever say is, "Hey, well, just because it looks like it's evil doesn't mean that it's evil," then a kid may never, may think like, "Hey, there's actually nothing truly evil in this world. Everything is just a matter of my perspective on it, and so I have to sort of give it its hearing. I have to understand it because maybe there's something truly good here." And as an adult, that is true. But as a kid, there are bad things out there. There, are, there's a truly evil world that there. Orcs are evil. Orcs. The only positive thing to do to an orc is to kill an orc or a dragon. The only positive thing to do about a dragon are giant spiders. The only thing you do to a giant spider is you kill the giant spider. And then after you grow up, you realize, you know, that story of an orc, that story of a dragon or a giant spider, it, we need to we need to step a little a step back and recognize as an adult or as you know, an, as someone who's you know just older than a young child that. Maybe there's something a, a, a little below the, a little further below the surface that we need to sort of contemplate. Like maybe that that the, that tradition of literature is missing that someone can be an orc on the inside, and be beautiful on the outside, and that's 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 really important for for you to learn. But that you have to first learn that orcs are evil and they sh- they need to be destroyed. Yeah, and I think there's probably a lot we could talk about in terms of the way you navigate the world is a child versus an adult. And like, it's good to teach little children, don't talk to strangers. And as children get older, you teach them how to talk to strangers. And to love the stranger. And, and then you teach them, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. But like, you want your four-year-old to judge the book by its cover because yep. like, that's for the good and safety of your four-year-old. Right. And um, young kids aren't capable of the kind of second order reasoning that's needed to not judge a book by its cover. Yeah, and, and again, this this goes back to in education when we treat children like adults. Children, um, they need to learn um, a more black and white way of seeing things. So, like the antihero is a great example because um, there's so much literature out there that d- displays a truly good, virtuous hero. Okay, um, but it's very popular today for um, hero stories to have a very flawed hero, a hero that's like grumpy or mean or um, has a flaw in some way. And that's confusing. Uh, 
it's an important critique, but uh, of sort of the tradition. But but again, it's not. Kids need to see truly good people and truly bad people, instead of mixing them together and see this like opaque, um, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad hero. Um, that'll that'll come. But our world is so cynical about there being a truly good person, someone who can truly save people. Um, and it's important for them to have that category. Yeah, so I guess one application question of this does relate to the way we teach the Bible in biblical narratives to children. Because I think many of the Old Testament biblical characters truly are mixed bags. They aren't all good or right. all bad, as opposed to like some of Jesus's parables where you do have an all good and all bad character. Sure. So how do we help little kids get to know biblical stories without so whitewashing them that when it when they're old enough to be able to have that kind of reasoning and deal with the ambiguities of moral characters yeah. um yeah how how do we do that well I, I i mean honestly there's probably some room for disagreement here there's probably some room for different people have different emphases at the end of the day um i like to sit down with sylvia and just like tell her the whole story of a book like today we're going to talk about Genesis and I'll just tell you the whole story of Genesis or today we're going to talk about Exodus and we're going to tell the story of Exodus. And I try to always represent the story of Exodus as a drama, you know, um, or Deuteronomy, for example, I want to, I want to picture that as a, as a grand agreement between God and his people. We're not going to get into the details about, you know, the blessings and the cursings in Deuteronomy, right? We're not going to get into what's going to happen to the land. Um, and that's because I'm concerned at this age to give her a broad picture of the characters, you know? Um, so if I'm going to tell her the story of David, um, I'm probably not going to get into Bathsheba. You know, I'm, I'm going to get into like the mighty man of God. Um, but then my hope is that as I tell and retell these stories to her, um, that they're growing in texture. And so that she'll be able to grow up with those stories. You know, she'll be able to say, Hey dad, tell me the story of first Samuel again. And you know, I'll try to tell her the story, but, but as she grows older, we might focus on more and more pieces. So I'm, I'm trying to take the onus upon myself to make sure that my kid understands the biblical narratives. It's not like my pastor's job to do that. Um, or at least not primarily, it's my job as, as father. Um, and, and, but I want to do that in a way that is incremental, recognizing that there's a, there's a depth to these stories a grittiness to some of these stories. I mean, when you're like cutting up a concubine into 12 pieces and sending in judges and sending it to all the 12 tribes, like we might not talk about that one for a while. And that's probably okay. <laughs> that's probably Maybe even okay. like, right. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, I don't think we need to introduce, you know, the, the full grittiness, like the full grit. You know, I think we can, um, we can start by portraying characters as maybe even static. Um, and then we can, then transition into speaking about characters as uh, dynamic um, who have both good things and bad things about them. Yeah, I think that's good and helpful. And probably as a takeaway from this conversation, as parents are looking at children's books, I think some, some parents might be inclined to be very aware of the, the damaging kind of books that are just explicit statements of fact, like a book that is maybe titled... Um, you can be whatever gender you want to be. Sure. And like every parent will look at that in the bookstore and say, bad book, we're not going to take that one. Right. But parents should exercise the discernment of reading through books and asking questions like, 
what what does this book show my children about being a child and about being a parent and all of these other things? Yeah, it it's my it's my goal to never let my child read a book that I haven't read, um, and um, that's not because I I want there to be no objectionable material. You know, I actually think that there's room for a little bit of objectionable material um, when it comes to you know, educating the the life of your child. Um, but I, I don't want to leave it up to anyone else. Um, and sometimes, you know, like the Thad book example, you know, it was like three quarters of that book where before I realized, hey, the dad's, one, the dad's an idiot, and he's like a really selfish person. Um, and do I want my kid to grow up with that view of what a dad is. And so, no. And so I would ask, you know, train yourself to, to, you know, it takes discipline to read all the books that your kids read. Um, but then it, but it's worth it. I promise you. Um, and, and then two, as you're reading those books, you know, you might just begin to ask questions like, how does this, how does this educate my child about how they should see the world? And is that a good picture of the world that you want them to see? Now, sometimes there are scary things that you may not want your kid to see, but there may be some value to letting them see it. Um, and good people could disagree on where that line is. Um, but there are some things that we could probably all agree. We don't want our kids to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so obviously take those out. But, you know, there's not a perfect line here. You know, I think you do your best. I think you try to identify good pieces of literature for your kid to read, and then you leave know, then you pray. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, one question that comes to my mind when we're talking about this is how, how do you do this? How do you exercise that kind of discernment with the right posture? Because we both grew up in sort of a fundamentalist world and whether it was like, you're not allowed to watch this Disney flick or like this sort of story because, you know, like it's ungodly or something like that. Like, and it came across as like Christians just don't do anything and yes, right. we live miserable lives. Like how, how do you talk to your kid? And I know she's very young, but right. as a principal and in education, how do you talk up to teachers and students about um, restricting certain stories or movies because of what it communicates without becoming a prude? Yeah. I, well, I think the goal is different. I think like in the fundamentalist world, the goal is to like not interact with sin ever. And I think what I'm talking about is I want I want all literature to be on the table for my kid when they are formed enough to read it. So, like, eventually my kid will get to the age where I'll say, like, let's just read everything and let's read everything together mm-hmm. um, and let's talk about it. And But before until we get there, um, then, you know, I, I want her to be formed in a certain way. So I'm going to pay a lot of attention to um, the things that we need to read in what order because it matters what order we read things in. Um, such that the, and the, again, the goal being is not to shelter her from sin, but to form her in certain, in a certain way so that whenever she is reading literature that is more adult, that when she's seeing movies and characters to play in a certain way, when she's seeing examples of fathers and mothers out there in culture, she'll, she has been formed enough to, to know how to relate to those things, to be able to know what's good, to call sin, sin, to call good, good, um, and so, the, again, the goal is different. Like, again, in the, the fundamentalist world, the goal was don't ever interact with sin, hide from sin, shelter yourself off from it. And I think my goal, and I think what I would encourage everyone else's goal to be, is how do you form your, your child into the type of person that can live in a dark world without being surprised by it, without being uh, overly affected by it? Um, 
you know, and, and then also how to redeem that world. Um, and that requires them understanding what murder looks like. That requires them understanding knowing what adultery looks like. And they'll learn about that in the pages of great novels, but not right away. Yeah. So my final question for you, Mitch, as we wrap up is, uh, should parents only have their kids read explicitly Christian stories? Like whether that's a storybook Bible or a story about a little girl who goes to church and, you know, comes to know Jesus. Um, is, is that helpful or detrimental in the long run? Yeah, it's not helpful. Um, <laughs> you, sh- you know, I, I, I've just seen it over and over again. Um, when it comes to the biblical narratives, those children who have a broad storehouse of images and metaphors and, and studies of characters and understanding of what that looks like. Um, you know, a good example for me was, um, you know, when Jesus is in Gethsemane and he says, let this cup, you know, pass from me. Um, I, I read that. I sort of understood. I mean, I understood it cognitively. I sort of, okay, he made a choice. Um, and then there was this one moment when I was reading Harry Potter where he looks in the pensieve, is that what it's called? And he comes to the realization that, oh, he has to die. In order to save his friends and his family, he has to die. And the movie does a terrible job of portraying the scene, but he doesn't go see his friends because, you know, so he's sad, he's broken up about what he has to do, but he's resolved. Mm -hmm. And he's filled with emotion because he realizes that this is the only way to save his family, but he's resolved to do it. In the movie, he goes to his friends and they sort of encourage him. In the book, he avoids his friends. He avoids his family. He goes directly down to to the den, down down to the boathouse, right? He goes down into the dungeon where the dragon is and he uh, sacrifices his life. Um, that is obviously Harry Potter's not Jesus, um, you know, but that walking through the emotions of someone who um, realizes that he needs to sacrifice his life is broken about it, but is resolved to do it. Again, not a perfect picture of Jesus in Gethsemane, but, but it, but it gives me uh, at least uh, one lens to see something that I didn't see before, namely a, a Jesus who is broken about uh, giving up his life because he is human, but yet resolved to do it. Yeah, and I think Harry he wants to do it. Harry shows that resolve by along the way ditching every piece of the Deathly Hallows that could protect him from death. Right. The the resurrection stone and yes. the invisibility cloak and the wand of power. Yes, yeah. that's right. And and I, you know, I had that same feeling when I was reading that portion. It's like, man, he's going into the woods. This is like Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane yep. and in a resolute way recognizing I could save my life but he gives it up like there his resolution is like fully formed. So then when his disciples tried to defend him, he tells them to put away his sword. Yep. He, he doesn't like try to get them to relate to him and encourage yep. him along the way, but he, right. he knows for them and for the world, he's, he's going to give up his life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so that story helped me see something about the biblical story that I might not have seen otherwise or, and, and, so I'm not using, I'm not saying that Jesus is Harry Potter. I think the picture is more complex than that. Um, but again, there are echoes, glimpses of the divine life in this narrative. And by reading that narrative, I came to understand the divine life 
uh, better and more fully. Well, Mitchell, it's been a joy to have you at Resurrection Church for our Bible conference and on this podcast. So thanks for sharing with us about the imagination, literature, and how we can be more fully formed as Christians through literature. Thanks. Thanks.